Welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. This is part two of The Death Show, and our focus is on mental health. Can I emphasize how important it is to be able to put yourself and your brain in a position to process grief, to process post-traumatic stress disorder associated with losing someone close to you? We have incredible seeing mental health professionals. Let us begin this portion of the show. Joining us now is Carol Brody Fleet, an award-winning author of the new book, Lost is a Four-Letter Word, a bereavement boot camp for the widowed. Kick grief in the ass and take your life back. Love the title. You learn more about it by going to our website at widowswearstilettos.com. Carol, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It is great to be with you. Thank you. As a grief recovery expert, what are some of the advice you can offer to individuals who have lost someone very close to them? What are some of the things that you've learned over the course of your life? The very first thing and the most important thing is to understand that you're not alone. You don't have to suffer alone and you don't have to suffer in silence. There is an abundance of help for you out there and we can help you get it. Uh, so please don't feel like you have to suffer in silence. And then you also need to decide that yours is a healing journey that belongs to you alone. That might sound silly. It might sound obvious. But unfortunately, too many in the bereaved community are surrounded by people with a lot of opinions. And those opinions aren't necessarily helpful or even positive. You need to recognize that you are going to heal in your way and in your time. And as long as you're not doing that in a destructive manner and you're not hurting anyone around you, how you choose to heal is entirely up to you. And can you please talk about what your new book is about? I love that you say, kick grief in the ass and take a life back. I, when I said the title, I was like, that is awesome. Cause it's very powerful. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you like it. Um, it is a bereavement boot camp in every sense of the word. There is an eight-part boot camp that is really designed with a, a lot of compassion, a little bit of humor, and some tough love to help the widowed really assume control of their healing journey. That's what this is all about, Ryan, is control. We can't control life and death, but we can control our reactions to it. And we can control how our healing journeys are going to go forward. And that is what the book is designed to do. And by saying, kick grief in the ass and take your life back, what you're saying to yourself is, grief does not own me. I'm going to own it. I am not going to let grief define who I am. It's going to shape who I am, but it's not about to define who I am. And that is what the book encompasses. There's also inspiration. There's motivation. There's places to journal. There's quizzes. There are all kinds of things in the book designed to help you take back control over a situation where you haven't had control, including – it also includes – this is probably the most important part. It includes resources both resources that serve the widowed community and resources that serve people in immediate crisis, along with contact information. Oh, and that's really important for widows in crisis. Well, what's some of the context? If somebody who's widowed, how does that differ from another loss of a loved one? I mean, people say lose a family. What's a, how does that differ? And what are some of the ways that you, you look to recover or heal from that compared to losing someone else? Well, it 
it's interesting. It's it's an interesting question, Ryan, um, because lo- our lost perspectives de- depend entirely on our relationships. For example, I lost my late husband, and then four months later, I lost my father. So right. those are two very profound losses. But I was wife to one and child of another. And so the grief process is very different. You know, I once heard one somebody who pro- proposed to be an expert say that all grief is the same. And I thought, that's crazy and dangerous. It's not all the same. This isn't pantyhose. One size does not fit all. Grief is different depending on your lost perspective. When you lose a spouse or a partner or a fiancé or the person to whom you committed the rest of your life, you are in a headspace that you are uh, one half of a couple. And that is a very weird headspace to kind of get to get out of without feeling guilty or feeling like you're cheating or feeling like you're incomplete. So it's an, it's an interesting paradigm, and it's a dynamic that you have to take your time to go through. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of widows don't take that time, and what happens is they rush to fill that void, that partner void, that one half of the two of you void, and they make a mistake. And that's why I always advise take the time to get to know who you are as a widow because you're not the same person that you were prior to losing your spouse. And you know, I've talked to people who've lost um, their, their, their wife or their husband, and I can imagine something that's unimaginable. And I know that maybe they, they're trying to find some measure of peace and comfort, but they're inconsolable. Is there anything that you recommend to that person who is inconsolable? who even maybe years later is not been able to find anything close to the happiness that that person that was their, their true love that brought to them? For somebody who is inconsolable, sometimes what is very helpful is a sense of community. Uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time putting down the Internet, and there's, there's a lot of good reasons for that. But one of the blessings of the Internet is – that you can locate community. And the bereaved community in all of its forms have ways to help you. And you will, can get yourself around other people who say, you know what, I lost my, my beloved to that illness too, or my beloved was killed too, or somebody said that stupid thing to me too, or I've been abandoned by my family and friends too. And once you discover kindred spirits, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden your world is bright and rosy again, but there's a measure of comfort in community. And I'm always quick to advise people to get yourself around like minds and like experiences, people who are going to lift you up, people who are going to say, hey, it, it's not okay right now, but it's going to be better. Maybe not tomorrow, but it's going to be better. Hold on. Hang on. We're here too. You, you'd be amazed at the amount of comfort that just being around one other person, even if it's online, who can say, hey, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, because maybe there's no one in your immediate orbit who truly gets it, even people who mean well. But you find that one other person out there who says, yeah, you know, somebody asked me why I'm not dating yet, too, and it, and you just automatically feel like, wow, I don't have to do this by myself. That's a great feeling. Got it. And there are some, I would imagine, that 
have certain spiritual beliefs, or maybe they don't even have a spiritual belief. They're, they're, they're committed atheists or committed agnostics. Either way, they, they have a perception in life, and maybe they feel that they have to stay within the pentameters of those belief patterns because that's what all they've known most of their life. Yet when they're going through the grieving process, they may have ideas that may challenge those very belief patterns. What happens during that period of time? Because I would imagine that Oh, my friend. Boy, yeah. oh, boy. That, that is an, that's a very personal question for me because I, w- I was that person. I was born and raised in the Jewish faith, and I always considered myself a, a good Jew, a good daughter, a good sister, and later on a good wife, a good mother, a good student, a good employee, all the good things. And when my late husband was diagnosed with ALS, which listeners is more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, I was furious. I was angry. And I, the only thing I could be mad at was God because I didn't understand how something like this could happen to good people who were doing good things. I didn't get it. It took me two years to figure it out. And I actually, for the very first time in all of my writings, I do talk about reconciling your spirituality, not mine or anyone else's, reconciling your spirituality with your loss. And I'm getting to do that in the new book for the very first time in all of the books and all of my articles. So I'm excited about that. Um, What is the most important thing to do is embrace your feelings in the moment that you're having them. I was told by a, a friend, and I thought it was very wise words, when I finally figured out that God wasn't sitting on high, looking on low, and deciding, oh, I think I'll mess with the Fleet family. When I figured out that wasn't the case, I said, but I've been, I've been two years mad at God. I've been so angry at him, and I've been saying some really awful things. And she said to me, don't worry about it. He's big enough to handle it. So if you are having a crisis of faith, of your own faith that you've adhered to and believed in, and you're struggling with that faith, that's okay. Go ahead with the struggle. Talk to the people within your faith. Talk to the people who are expert in that area. Talk to your cleric. Talk to uh, parishioners. Talk to people in a position to help you. If you are finding comfort in another faith, in another pursuit, in another way, that's okay too. Isn't that what religion is supposed to be, is an, is a conduit and an avenue to comfort and peace and solace and, and joy? Is that, that, that's what it's supposed to be. But hypothetically speaking, I mean, some organized religions will say the same things. They'll have, okay, well, this is why it happened. This is our perception as to why it happened. Right. What if those answers aren't good enough? And what if you are getting answers elsewhere that may be providing you comfort? Should you not feel guilty that these answers that are coming to you – that are a complete total contradiction of your religious faith? You should absolutely not feel guilty. There's no guilt involved because, again, I was raised in a religion where you're taught to question everything, and that includes questioning your own religion, which I did. I questioned my religion uh, generally and God specifically because I didn't understand a God who would, you know, quote, do such a thing, if you will. And, and I had to come to the place of peace that I came to on my own. It's really hard for an outside person to say, well, this is what you have to do, or this is how you have to feel. You can't tell someone how to feel. It's like telling me to be left-handed. I'm right-handed. I can't do it. You have to get to that place on your own. And however you get there, 
whether it's within your own faith or within a new faith or within no faith at all. That is the exploration that you have to do on your own. And, again, that's that's what I talk about in the book is it's not about you have to adhere to this faith or that faith or the, there's only one truth because I don't believe that. Um, but it's it's a case of self-exploration that you have to do on your own and without guilt and without regret and without hesitation. And, Carol, are there any colors – that a person should surround themselves with? Are there any sounds they should be listening to? Is there anything that would embed in their subconscious peaceful resonances that you'd recommend? I, you know, I can only talk from personal experience because, again, the, now I don't like to tell anyone how to feel. But I do love to tell them how to embrace. And whatever it is that brings you comfort, solace, a feeling that you have received a sign, which I do believe in. Um, and I, I've been receiving signs recently because we've got, we and our family have gone through a spate of losses. I believe in the signs that I've received. I am personally comforted by the colors blue and purple. Um, those are the, those are the, the, what I see in my head, uh, comforting and enveloping and warming to me. Um, I'm also very much enjoying guided meditation as I go to sleep. And you can find guided meditation and soundscapes um, on Spotify and streaming services and just stick in an earbud as you go to sleep. And it's, it compels you to close off your mind because all of our minds tend to race in the dark, especially when you're bereaved, and tune into the music, the rhythm of your breath, the the instructions that you're being given if you listen to guided meditation and it does incredible things for you both in the daytime hours and in the nighttime hours it helps with your sleep it helps with your anxiety levels it it has helped me immensely and of course the one thing that i always love to remind listeners is that it's not a sign of strength to try and go through this alone or without help nor is it a sign of weakness to seek help. If you find yourself in a place of crisis, in a place of desperation, please, please reach out to your doctor, to a mental health expert, to a therapist, to a coach, to anybody and everyone who is in the position to help you physically, mentally, and emotionally. And Carol, sometimes people will talk to another and they'll feel very good. And they'll enjoy the feeling of being around that person because that person will take them off, uh, you know, their pain and suffering. And then I'm wondering if sometimes a codependency develops where mm-hmm. the person who is suffering the, the loss will want to be around that person all the time. And then you have a, you know, you have a, an emotional codependent relationship. How does, if you are experiencing a great loss, how do you begin to regain the strength to create your own happiness, to generate your own happiness within so you can become independent of others when it comes to generating happiness and experiencing uh, great things in life once again? Well, uh, that's actually a two-pronged question. First of all, most of us have that one person that we go to and just let it all out. And, you know, we, we thank God for that one person. 
but you also do have to take responsibility for your own happiness. You cannot continually look to the outside. I found, and I advise, that just doing one positive thing every single day, no matter how large or small, does, does wonders. And then celebrate the victory. I mean, the, the first time I changed an air conditioning filter, I, I, I felt like I ruled the world. Good for um, you, because that's you something know, I yeah, can't do. Well, I know, right? Well, listen, <laughs> I, the, the, my idea of technology is liquid eyeliner. So I thought it was a really big deal. Um, when the first time I went out to a comedy club by myself and enjoyed myself, genuinely enjoyed myself, um, the first time that I took a walk after my husband died, I just took a walk. I just got outside of the four walls. And and I took and I took a ten minute walk, and I just felt a renewal of, of spirit and revived. And I thought, okay, yeah, I can do this. Do one positive thing every single day, and it will start to take you in the direction that you want to go. And anything that's not taking you in the direction that you want to go, whether it's negative people, negative surroundings, you don't need it. You don't need it. Jettison that at, to the best of your ability. I mean, we can't help who we work with. And we can't help who we're related to. But what we can do is minimize both the time that we spend and the effect that we permit it to have on us. Ms. Carol Brody Fleet, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Ms. Fleet, again, is author of several books. One of them is called Lost is a Four-Little Word of a Raven Boot Camp for the Widowed. Kick grief in the ass and take your life back. Learn more about her by going to her website at widowswearstilettos.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's Carol Fleet. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. Joining us now is Dr. Joyce Hawker, psychologist, who's just written about her memoir, Dealing with the Loss of Four Family Members in the Span of Two Years. And the upcoming book is called The Trail to Tin Cup, Love Stories at Life's Ends. You can learn more about Ms. Hawker by going to her website at JoyceHawker, H-O-C-K-E-R.com. Dr. Hawker, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Okay. As far as the healing process goes, from your perspective, how did you begin to cope with the loss of four family members in two years? How painful was that? And what are some of the things that you did to begin the healing process and keep on continuing the healing process? Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad that you said to keep on um, continuing the healing process because I don't see this as something that just ends at a certain point. It's more like these these losses become braided into our lives. Uh, we go through spirals of healing and grieving. So at the very first, I'd want to say don't expect yourself to just get over it in a certain period of time, 18 months or something like that. It takes the time it takes, and it's worthy work. So you're asking me what I did to yes. address this issue. Well, when my sister died, she was my closest friend. This was the second death. Um, I was a mess. I did a lot of things wrong, um, just briefly, it would be that I didn't take time off. I didn't take a grief sabbatical, which is what I advise people to do now. But I just kept on working, and that was uh, did not serve me well. 
But the things that I did do that were helpful um, is that I set up some places, spaces in my home to remember her. I got out pictures and objects. Um, I began going through her writing. She was an academic and a writer, and she had a lot of writing. So with both Janice, my sister, and then the others, my mother, father, and sister-in-law, I dealt with the tangible objects of their lives right away, right after they died. I mean, photographs, old cassette tapes, letters, papers, drawings, things like that. And I began to surround myself with these tangible objects, and that helped a lot to connect me with the person who just died. Psychologists call these transitional objects. We transition from one emotional state to another by using objects to help make the bridge. That helped me a lot. Okay. And I liked how you said at the beginning that this is something that's going to continue happening. What are some of the things that a person should do to, I don't know, honor the fact that they have lost someone very close to them, Mm -hmm. but also at the same time, be open to the idea and possibility that life has to go on. What are some of the, I mean, sometimes I know, I imagine that, especially someone listening, you could have lost, you may have lost someone that's so close to you that you can't fathom living. How do you fathom going on and living when maybe everything you've had in your life, the person you love the most is no longer there? What's, what is the purpose? I mean, what is, is it, is it absolutely necessary, necessary that you have to continue on? What if you don't want to be here anymore? Well, that, as you know, is a a problem for some people. I have, in my professional life, I've certainly talked with people who came into my office and said, I don't want to go on. There's no point. Um, I've listened to people talk about contemplating suicide. For those folks, I have tried to say as best as I could, what do you think your sister, your mother, your father would want for you. And I've asked them to tell me what they gained from their relationship with the person who's now gone and what we might think about together that would honor that person by their continuing life. It's never a mistake. I mean, it's never a good idea to say to somebody, oh, uh, you don't really feel that way because they really may at that point. I think you're also asking me. Oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. In a row, too. Yeah, but just basically saying that sometimes a person may not have anything else to live for. They I mean that they've been, and even if they're mm-hmm. asking, you know, what would so and so want me to do? I'm sure that the person would. They'd say, well, mm-hmm. they would want me to be happy. And what mm-hmm. if you can't be happy without that person? I would say, and I said this to myself in my interior reflections and say it to other people, how can I honor the continuing relationship I have with this person, even though they've died? Death ends a life, but it doesn't end a relationship. And so I began to explore with myself, 
ways that I could honor the continuing relationship with my sister, my mother, my father, my sister-in-law, even though they were gone. And to my surprise, I found that relationships can continue to grow and change even after death. That's certainly been true for me. You can't argue with a person who's grieving. You know, you can, I can only accept what they're saying as being the emotional truth and saying, I'll say something like, let's see if we might find another way to experience this or to help you get through this time that seems like a time you can't survive. And of course, I said same kind of things to myself. Doctor, is it? I don't know. Somebody may feel depressed. They may feel actually the point of suicidal. Do you, do you think that it, it is a you should deny those feelings, or you should just accept them for what they are and manage them? Because maybe some people don't. Maybe they're they're scared of having those feelings. Maybe they're trying to suppress those feelings. Mm-hmm. When dealing with grief, is it healthier to allow all feelings to come to the surface, regardless of what they are, and to not judge them? Absolutely, I agree with what you just said. Okay. Feelings are facts. Feelings exist. Our ways of thinking about those feelings do change over time uh, with work or with transformational experiences, but we feel what we feel. So I never argue with a person, including myself, about what I feel. Feelings are facts. Now, if a person can... If a person convinces me that she or he is suicidal, then of course, in my professional role, I'm going to do a suicide assessment and see if we can set up a contract that will keep them safe. So it's a both and to accept the feelings and also to take seriously if a person tells me that they are suicidal. Dr. Hawker, one of the things I thought was really interesting about you is that when I was reading your bio is that you had a near-death experience. What was that near-death experience like, and how did that give you some kind of um, measure of peace in what you ex- previously experienced, losing four family members? Well, well, that was a surprise for me. Of course, it was a surprise to have an accident that required me to have my spleen out in an emergency oh, way, geez. which is what happened. I had a fall, and went back to work after I came back from New Orleans where this accident happened, thinking that I just had a bad bruise. And then one of my own clients noticed that I had just passed out in our session, and she called the ambulance. Thank heavens, she saved my life. But as I was riding from my office to the hospital, which wasn't very far away, I thought to myself, I wonder if I will see Gary, my husband, again. And I realized that I might or might not, that I might be dying. But it came to me in a way that was incredibly comforting. Oh, Janice went through this. She went through it. I can too, if this is my time. And I didn't feel anxious or frightened. I was in a lot of pain. but, But it was somehow all right and i guess the the last question i have is that there are some people who say okay you know what i don't care what you say 
Uh, I'm either an atheist or agnostic, or I just don't believe there's anything else out there. Do you feel that regardless of whether you have a spiritual, religious, or any kind of perspective, that there is a um, healthy protocol for processing uh, death? And does the belief or having any form of spirituality, does that actually help the process? That's a great question. Thank you. People who have some kind of sustaining spiritual life that focuses on meaningful life as we are here on Earth seem to do very well. Um, There are certainly people, as you well know, who say, oh, well, I'm going to see my mother in heaven or I'm going to see my husband in heaven. I know that people who don't have that belief, and I would be one, I don't know, don't know what's going to be out there. It's still very helpful to have a sense that life is meaningful and that we can create something beautiful about our lives um, here on Earth whether there is a life beyond this life or not. So people who have that tend to do better with their grieving. Dr. Joyce Hawker, psychologist and author, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Dr. Hawker, please go to our website at JoyceHawker, H-O-C-K-E-R.com. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Joining us now is Mark Hennick, a mental health strategist. You can learn more about him by going to his website at markhennick.com. Mr. Hennick, what are some of your perspectives on what a person should do when going through the process of losing someone very close to them? What do you recommend? You know, it's different for everybody. And I, what I can say for me, what worked for me when I lost my mother uh, suddenly at a young age, both her and I at a young age, um, is that you have to take it day by day. And I, I know that that sounds cliche, but I don't think you really fully get it until you're really in the middle of it, that, you know, the, the days all seem to blend together, even hour to hour seems to, to blend together. And people around you and, and yourself included experience such extremes and emotions uh, that it's it's uh, not helpful to get stuck in any one moment during that time, just let it pass. You know, the, something that I always remind myself of was this too shall pass. And trying to ride out that intense emotion, uh, reaching out for help when you need it, ideally for from other people who aren't also grieving uh, the same loss. Uh, although that can be helpful too. There, there's a sense of, um, as there was for me, a, a sense of a shared struggle, I think, when I grieved with my uh, brother, with my sister over the loss of our mother. Um, but reaching out to to talk to a professional, I think, can be very helpful because uh, they provide that uh, objective uh, outside view. And, and for me, uh, that was extremely helpful. So, you know, I, I think it depends on uh, on what you bring into the grief and what you bring to the table uh, when you start the grief. Um, but not being afraid to reach out, I think, is key. Do you think that when you are grieving that you should basically throw yourself into it? make it more intense. I mean, if you basically immerse yourself in the grief and let all your emotions out, that it actually is healthier as opposed to kind of letting it kind of drip, drip, drip over over a number of years? 
you know, I really think that it, it does help to let it out in that intense kind of way. And I had never really, I mean, I had grieved before, but never quite to the intensity uh, that I did when I lost my mother. I mean, I was a, I was her youngest. I was the baby. I was the mama's boy, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I had lost people before, but I never knew that kind of grief. Uh, and what I had read early on uh, was exactly what you just said, to uh, grieve fully, to forget about everything else. Don't worry about what you have to do tomorrow or next week or, you know, what you have to do for work a, a year from now or whatever it is. Just grieve. Just be in the grief. And it's going to suck. It's going to be terrible. You will hate it. It will be painful, but you have to do it. Uh, and it's better if you do it up front because it's going to happen anyway. It, it turns out that we can't hold in these kinds of emotions forever, uh, that they will come out in one way or another. Uh, and I observed that firsthand. I was the one, uh, my sister and I both actually, um, really grieved intensely up front. But our brother had a whole lot more difficulty with it. And, and, and that was typical of his personality, I think. Uh, he closed down. He shut down. He, he ran away, actually. He didn't even want to be a part of a lot of the typical bereavement and, and grieving process, like the wake and the funeral and, and uh, collecting the, the belongings and cleaning out the apartment and all that kind of stuff that's very normal and transitional. And as a result, now two and a half years later, I think that he's still really grieving. Uh, while my sister and I have moved on, and, and it still hurts, of course, and it always will, uh, but we've moved and, and grown as a result of it, and, and we just don't feel like he really has. So I think it's key to be able to just let yourself grieve and, you know, as they say, dance like nobody's watching will grieve like nobody's watching. I, I think we get self-conscious, and, and that holds us back, that restrains us, but we need to be able to express this emotion fully. What are some of the constructive ways of expressing grief? I mean, sometimes when somebody has lost someone very close to them, they may turn to drinking, they may turn to drugs, mm -hmm. they may turn to, to run marathons, they may do a number of different things. Well, what are some of the constructive outlets for the grief that ultimately, let's say, um, can honor the person who you've lost and mm -hmm. honor yourself at the same time? You know, I, I think that, uh, again, everybody grieves in their own way, of course. And for me, um, I found that some of the defense mechanisms that started to creep up all had something to do with intellectualizing it. That's how that's how I needed to grieve. I needed to think it through. I needed to um, research all the possible causes that could have lent itself into this death. And, you know, for some people, uh, they're, and I say this cautiously, of course, but they're fortunate to know why their loved one died. Uh, either it was a long illness or it was, or, or there's something else that they could reach out to. Uh, but many people have no idea, and myself included, they, they just didn't see it coming. Uh, so for me and the type of personality that I have, I needed to figure it out. I needed to, to think of something. Uh, I needed to invest myself in my mother died of a, it turns out, of a, a sudden death in epilepsy, it's called, uh, a fairly rare phenomenon. But immersing myself in epilepsy research and neurology and, and uh, neurosurgery um, research and to try to figure out what happened, it turned out, however, uh, that that really wasn't the key for me at all. The, the key for me was uh, accepting the ambiguity, accepting the, the um, difficult conclusion that it doesn't actually matter why she died because it's never going to bring her back. And once I got to that point where I realized that you know, she's gone, and I don't like that, but that's okay, that I'm going to be okay, uh, because we just have to make do with the situation we have. That's what really helped for me. 
So I think that one of the things that helped get me there, though, was to think a lot about her. And that that was painful. Uh, And it's part of that really grieving fully up front. It's telling stories. It's sharing memories. Uh, uh, I'm working on a, I actually just finished a memoir, my first book, in which I tell stories about my mother. uh, And they're not all uh, they're not all wonderful stories. They're not all things of all the great Christmases we had together and all the wonderful um, close times, although there were lots of those, uh, but really reflecting on the hard times too, thinking about the regrets, thinking about the things I wish I had have said, the things that, that I, I wish I, I didn't say to her, the, the moments that I, I wished we had had. I think it's important to um, give those thoughts and those experiences space without letting them take up your entire self. It, it's easy to dwell on those things, but uh, to validate them and let them pass. I think sharing those stories and really, for me, writing those out, that happened to go with my intellectualization thing pretty well, uh, that was really healing for me. Um, for others, it's uh, donating or, or doing uh, good works, charitable works, uh, volunteer works in matters that uh, uh, issues that matter to their loved one. And I think that that can be really... Uh, useful as well to be able to say that you're giving back to society in a way that your lost loved one uh, would have appreciated. Mr. Mark Hennick, mental health strategist, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You can learn more about Mr. Hennick by going to his website at Mark, M-A-R-K, Hennick, H-E-N-I-C-K dot com. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mr. Hennick. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Karen Bernstein-Soshana. She is the founder and lead health, for, health expert at wellnessgirl.net, and she has experienced some personal tragedies and she's overcome. Ms. Soshana, welcome to the program. Can you please explain to our audience what has happened to you and how you have gone about the healing process and any advice you can offer to others who are also on the healing process right now after losing a loved one? You know, I um, since I was a young girl, I thought about death a lot. Um, it was always kind of part of my thinking, and I think that's because my parents were both Holocaust survivors. So death was always, uh, like my existence was very precious, knowing that they were survivors. So um, part of my experience with um, my parents and losing my parents um was that they never talked about death and really they really believed they were going to be living forever. Um, so when my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, it was a shock to us all. And when she eventually passed away, it was in 2012, I really thought I was fine. And um, it turned out that I, I wasn't. I really had a difficult time. Um, coping with it. And, it. and it didn't hit me until months later. Okay, so she had been bedridden for almost a year. And um, so when she finally passed, it was, to a sense, like a relief. But um, for her as well, you know, she knew how she was, she wouldn't want to live like that. So when she when she passed, it was, um, like I said, it was a relief. But in time, uh it really, it really impacted me. And I, I got uh, stressed and sad and anxious and, you know, a lot of other things. Um, But I, I, I learned from that. And, and death uh, for me, is just, it's never too far away. And I, it's, it's like a humbling experience. 
also, um, uh, more recently, I lost my, my dad a year ago. So it was kind of, it, it's just been uh, near and around me. So what I mean, I can't imagine how, how painful this must be. I know that there are others who are listening who've gone through something probably tremendously horrible or just suffering. But what are some of the things that have worked for you that you think might you be know, able to help for others? I'll tell you, when I, when I first started, uh, when I learned that my mom was sick, I needed a, a way to cope just, just for that. And, and the, the key for me was learning meditation. That was huge, a huge um, healing process for me was learning how to meditate. And it, it, it's not complicated. It's, it doesn't have to be woo-woo. It's really learning how to breathe and thinking about your breath. Um, and that's something that can you, you can learn. There are apps that you can do. There are, are uh, books you can read. Uh, but it doesn't have to be something that's like, scientific or religious it doesn't have to you don't have to associate that with meditation so when she passed away um meditation was again a huge tool for me um some some other things that i think are important and what i did was i wrote a letter to my mom and it was really cathartic and therapeutic and and just spending that time you know sharing with her things that I was going through and things that I would be telling her and how I missed her and, and what she did for me, for my life, you know, um, having that and expressing that in, uh, in writing and getting that out was, was just a cathartic experience. So that's, that's another, um, tool that I, I used and that I recommend to clients who are going through, um, through a death experience. Um, do you think it's also time as well? Do you find that it's healthy to kind of distance yourself from the entire experience? I know that there's some people who have pictures, mementos, uh, their loved one near them. Do you think it's healthy to kind of, I don't know, take a vacation, take a vacation from the, from the morning is it, and not feel guilty about it? Um, you know what? I, that idea of guilt is so, is so, um, right on. I think, I think that that issue of guilt that people may feel when somebody dies, that's why I love the idea of writing so that you can, you can get that out there because guilt really has no place when you're mourning somebody. Um, so there are, and there are things that you can say in a letter and, and that's why I, I, I love that. As far as, um, time, I think everybody just, handles death differently um you know i have a dear friend she happened to lose her father uh two weeks after i lost my father which was a year ago and she had lost her mother the year before so she lost both her parents within less than 12 months of each other and i know that she is having uh quite a difficult time in a different way that i am or that i experience and um I just think everybody has their own experience and that there is no, there should be no judgment when it comes to mourning and how people mourn is it's very personal and it's a very, uh, uh, a personal experience. And, um, but there are ways to cope and there are ways to kind of put your foot back into life. And I think, um, finding support is, uh, important either from, 
friends or loved ones or even, you know, a support group that you may not know anybody, but you are all experiencing this deep loss and might be able to relate to one another. Um, another thing I think that helps is getting out into nature and experiencing the world around and, you know, seeing how that uh, the earth continues, you know, it, it, it keeps rolling around the sun and, we wake up again the next day. And I, I think thinking about what our loved ones would want for us is another way to think about how to cope and how to walk through this, this path. I just want to mention one more um, idea for listeners, a book that has helped me and that I think could bring a lot of uh, peace is called the Tibetan book of living and dying. Um, and it's by uh, the author Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, but more importantly, you could Google the Tibetan book of living and dying. And I think those concepts um, in this book are fascinating to consider because in our culture, we don't really talk about death. And death becomes a topic that is uncomfortable or um, we're afraid of it or we want to deny it. And I, I think uh, the way that um, they they consider death is a beautiful way to, to think about death and, and actually has helped me and supported me in thinking about um, where the people are that I love the most that aren't around anymore. So I just wanted to make sure. Oh, no, that Karen, were there a couple of quotes you said that you, the, you had from that book? So remember we were talking offline before that. Was there any particular quote you think that are really strong? So, okay, so a couple, yeah, there are a couple of quotes. Um, so one quote is that um, you know, the way that uh, to, in Tibetan Buddhism they consider death is it's actually like a rebirth so even though our body um is gone and there's an ending of the way we know that person to have lived through the body you know the body's the life of the body is gone but the spirit continues to live on and um that's kind of part and parcel so um there's a famous poet named rumi he's a, a poet and a mystic and he said that grief can be the garden of compassion and if you keep your heart open through everything, your pain can become your greatest ally in your life's search for love and wisdom. So the um, author of the, the book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, also, I love this quote, and it's a few sentences, so just uh, bear with me. I'll start by saying, I'll start by saying, quote, um, so my heartfelt advice to those in the depths of grief and despair after losing someone they dearly loved is to pray for help and strength and grace. Pray you will survive and discover the richest possible meaning to the new life you now find yourself in. Be vulnerable and receptive. Be courageous and be patient. Above all, look into your life to find ways of sharing your love more deeply with others now, unquote. That's awesome. Ms. Karen Bernstein Soshan, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You can learn more about Karen by going to her website at wellnessgirl.net. I've been to it before. It's fantastic. You can learn a lot of health tips. And we look forward to your upcoming book. Thank you so much. It, this is really a pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to talk about death anytime. I think it's, the more we talk about it, the more comfortable we'll, we'll become and um, the healthier we'll be. Joining us now is Megan Bruno, psychotherapist, wellness, and executive coach. You can learn more about her by going to her website at Megan Bruno, B R U N E A U dot com. Dr. Bruno, welcome to the program. From Thank your, you for having me, Ryan. Thank you. From your perspective, 
there are people that go online, they're looking to engage an online community when they are suffering a loss. What is the difference between talking to people on Facebook or other social media platforms and actually being with them in person, and do you recommend one or the other? You know, I think there are benefits to both. Uh, I, I wouldn't say one or the other is necessarily better depending on a person's goals. I mean, you know, when we're in person, there's a lot more that can happen that we can't reach online. So, for example, you know, the mirror neuron experience when we're facing somebody, we actually mirror their facial expressions and are able to read what they're feeling, and that's part of how empathy takes place. So with um, the innovation of a lot of our stories and narratives being online, we're actually um, becoming less empathic, unfortunately. So if a person is grieving and they're sharing that with someone in person, that person is so much more aware of the nonverbals, right? So they're not just hearing the story that oftentimes the person can't really even articulate given the magnitude of their grief, but they're able to actually experience what that person is feeling beyond their words and they're able to be present and that's where touch can take place and, you know, um, being more aware of energy and giving that healing energy back. So there are so many limits to being online because we don't access any of that. However, you know, if a person is feeling super self-conscious or they're the type of person who might isolate when they're feeling um, really low or when they're grieving, online can be a way that a person can kind of titrate their reaching out for help or perhaps like post a status and see who comes forward. Or they might be able to actually get down what they want to say um, in words because, you know, they have multiple attempts typing it in front of them. So that's a way that, you know, they might be able to reach out for help and receive comments and support that actually live on as well. So if it's something like on Facebook or Instagram, that person can keep referring back to that, almost like it's, a, um, you know, a bunch of sympathy cards they've received. And Dr. Bordeaux, we're in a culture right now where people consume a ton of media. And what I'm wondering is what types of media can people consume that will trigger a response in the brain that will release more serotonin, that will make them feel good? What, what are some of the feel-good media that they can be consuming on a consistent basis that will enhance the chances of them having a chemical reaction which will produce feel-good um, chemicals within their brain? Um, well, that's a good question because, you know, a lot of what's producing feel-good chemicals in the brain is actually the problem. So, um, you know, like Facebook notifications, for example, or likes on Instagram photos, like we now have research to support that there's a dopamine hit, which is a feel-good chemical, absolutely. There's a dopamine hit every time we um, look at our phone and get those likes. No, that's, that's not necessarily a good thing, though, right? Like that's keeping us addicted to our phones, so it's actually um, perpetuating addictions. So, you know, what I recommend for people is to, you know, with really, with anything, is to just become more and more self-aware and practice mindfulness. And what I mean by that is being able to recognize, like, okay, you know, when I look at this feed or, you know, when I search articles on this thing, you know, how is it making me feel more similar to the long run, right? So it might give that instant gratification hit of, um, I don't know, curiosity or inspiration or, um a very fleeting sense of self-worth or validation, but ultimately, you know, um, I mean, I specialize in, in eating disorders, and uh, I work with a lot of women and men who are in recovery, and, you know, one of the first things that we'll do is go through their Instagram feeds and make sure that they're not following a bunch of people who are um, uh, portraying a very unrealistic um, image of what wellness 
or uh, happiness or being a woman is. So, you know, I think it's a more complex question than just like a type of media might uh, bring about more serotonin. I think that, you know, if you're looking at actual um, content, then being really mindful of like, how is this making me feel about myself? Am I comparing and despairing? And then in terms of like using technology for serotonin, I think, you know, connect through connection is really important. So not just like the, again, reading comments on Instagram or Facebook posts, but you know, what does your DMs folder look like? You know, what's happening behind the scenes that you're not actually um, displaying toward potentially thousands of others? What are some of the more authentic conversations you're having where they're, they're real and you're taking off the veneer and you're actually using the platform for authentic connection and not superficial connection? And that's ultimately what will lead to, you know, the uh, serotonin, a deeper, more lasting serotonin hit and feelings of connection and self-worth. Dr. Megan Brunel, psychotherapist, wellness, executive coach. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Ms. Dr. Brunel, please go to our website at Megan Brunel, B-R-U-N-E-A-U.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Dr. Pat Basili. She is internationally acclaimed and host of the Dr. Pat Show. She's also the founder of Transformation Talk Radio. You can learn more about Dr. Pat Basile by going to her website at thedrpatshow.com. Dr. Pat, an honor to have you with us. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, I've, I'm really thrilled to be here, and thank you for all that you're doing in the world. Thank you, Dr. Pat. So what would you recommend to somebody who's experiencing pain and suffering of a loved one? What do you tell that person <laughs> who's experiencing the pain and suffering of a loved one? Yeah, I'll tell you what you don't tell them. <laughs> you probably don't want to walk up to them and say, you know what, things happen for a reason. That's probably right. something you don't want to say. Um, Imagine it. Uh, you know, I, I think this is a really big uh, big topic, and it's something that's really near and dear to me. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, today is Wednesday. Uh, three days ago, um, we lost a very dear friend of ours to a battle with cancer. When I was six years old, my mother committed suicide. Um, so death is something I'm very familiar with. Um, but if we're talking about, you know, the loss of a loved one specifically today, I think it's good because there are many, many different losses. And, you know, I, I, I think for me what I'd like to share with everybody, what I've discovered along the way, I basically lost my mom when I was uh, six. Uh, I lost my my sister in 1992, my stepmom in 93, my mentor in 97, and about two summers ago, we buried two of our sisters. So loss is something that I'm very familiar with. And the thing that I want to say, uh, you know, for people listening is this, how we work with help support someone that's close to us or someone we know. This is not a one-size-fits-all. It really isn't. And I think the thing that I want to say to people, whatever it is that you want to know and how to support a loved one that is experiencing loss, whether it's an individual or it's a job. You know, I studied job loss for eight years, so I have 1,200 pages of, of, of interview notes. I can tell you quite a bit about what that feels like. But the thing that I think I want to say here in the short time we have is whatever you do, whatever you say, please make sure it comes from a place of authenticity. Because I think that, you know, the thing that 
that we all know that when someone loses someone, you don't know what it's like. We don't know what that experience like. It's different for everyone. But the thing that I think that we can all understand is that whatever that love, whatever that caring that that individual had for that person that is gone now is very real for them. And so for all of us that have experienced loss and are, are, you know, have family and friends and loved ones that go through it, they really, really are looking for a way for all of us to show up as Kuan Yin. And that is to show up as an absolute pillar of compassion. And that doesn't mean we figure out fancy things to say or you know, look up some quotes, um, sometimes just a simple call or a baked pie. If you have traditions like I grew up with, uh, coming from an Italian family, it's an Italian feast. But the thing that I've come to know is that we all experience grief and loss differently. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. As a matter of fact, the stages of grief that were once developed were not meant for the survivors. That Those stages of grief were actually developed for the people that we're leaving this earth skin. You know, so there are so many things that we learn. But I, I love this I love this idea. I I, I love uh, you know when we think about, you know, hypocrisy and we think about, you know, what it was like to have, you know, all of us look at what the word, you know, illness means or disease means. You know, we're looking at a rite of passage that isn't just about the event of death. You know, there truly is an entire journey that happens with folks. Now, clearly, I gave you a couple of examples in my life (laughs) where folks, you know, I didn't have a way to be with them through this journey. But how I experience, you know, my process of loss is boiled down to two things. So I can share my own experience, but I'm really hesitant to say what it's going to be like for other people. And here's what I've come to know about death for me. First of all, there's the actual death and the loss of the individual, the person, who they were. You know, what does that mean to lose a mom? What is it about that that has such grief to know that that person will not be available to me in that same form? And then there's the second part. And that second part starts with every story now I start to tell myself about my life, what my future is going to be like, what it's not going to be like, how it's going to unfold. And so the question really then becomes, am I experiencing grief of an individual or am I too experiencing the loss of the way something was? You know, somebody uh, shared a quote with me not too long ago. I never forgot it. And most of the time when people leave us, we experience such a wide range of emotions, anger, frustration, resentment. It depends on what happened. And the thing that was said to me is, you know, there's there's this interesting definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up all hope, giving up all hope for a better path. So I think what happens when someone passes on, that we're at a loss for trying to make sense of what it comes to mean. 
you know, we, we're, we're not really quite there. You know, I, I love the work of Manly P. Hall. And one of the things I remember about reading that he said, he said, sorrow, suffering, and loneliness are the great builders of character. You know, man never becomes truly great until his heart is broken. You know, that is the supreme test. Those who deepened and broadened by their experience rise triumphant from the ruins of their dreams and pass on to fuller destiny. So for me, that's what I hold in the forefront of my life now. When I look at this idea of someone passing or something not occurring anymore, a person not being in my life, am I going to be saddened by it? You bet. You know, the people that have left, am I saddened by them? Yes. But how can I not now create stories that are less about that person and more about my own fear, my own concerns, my own well-being, and my own future? And I think that's what I've learned after experiencing many, many losses in my life is getting and understanding where is the real grief in the process? What am I experiencing? The other thing I realized, I learned a lesson from the Dalai Lama. And I remember a story that was told to me once where the Dalai Lama was doing a conference and had a bunch of uh, these thought leaders, you know, in the room with him. And he was laughing it up and having a jolly old time. And all of a sudden, when his number one person walks in the room and the number one person walks in the room and whispers something in the Dalai Lama's ear. And the next thing you know, the Dalai Lama drops his head for something maybe like four, five, six, maybe seven seconds, just drops his head clearly a shift in energy then picks his head up and continues where he left off and later on what was discovered was that the Dalai Lama had learned that his closest dearest friend was just executed so you see we have this idea about grief that grief has to take decades of our life that it has to take enormous amounts of of time and energy I think the most important to think about in loss is am I really grieving this person or am I fearing a future that is so unknown? And I think that's been the most important thing for me to discover because am I really grieving this person not being here today or am I in fear of a future now that may exist without this person? And then the third thing, is it both? Because if it's both, how do I get some help with that? So those are, you know, for me, those are just a few things that I guess that I, I've learned along the way. But, you know, I'm also, I'm also this person that, you know, created a positive talk radio network because I do believe in the power of positive energy. And, you know, how do I do that? How do I put myself in a place where I'm allowing myself to take the time I need to understand the true loss of an individual that may be so important to me and separate that from an attachment to a spirit that is now released and gone. You know, I had a, a teacher once, um, a very important person to me, took me out on my first vision quest and literally said to me right before she herself passed away, you know, said to me very clearly, Pat, listen, you know, you're holding on an attachment for a soul that has moved on. And what right do you have to hold on to that soul for yourself? 
And so I, I really think that this is a, a complex issue that I believe the only way I've been able to get through it has been to really step back and get some help about understanding what am I feeling today? What is going on with me? And can I be okay if I'm, if I'm afraid? You know, can I still be in deep, deep grief, grief and sorrow for someone and at the same time be afraid of a future that is so unpredictable and a past that I so am afraid of let going of. So those are some of the most important things to me when I ask, when you ask, ask that question of what I learned in my own life experience. I think the thing that I, I, I love to keep in mind is sometimes we think we know what it's like for somebody else to grieve something. We either think, oh, my gosh, I do understand it. I've lost everybody in my family. Or we have an idea, man, you just lost your job. It's just a job. And either way, the thing that I would say to anybody listening to this is you don't know what it's like. So the best that you can do is literally show up as Kuan Yin. And if it is you that is in that place, you still show up as Kuan Yin and make sure that the compassion that you have for yourself is first and foremost the number one thing on your list. I know that's a long answer, but it's really no. It was, it was a great question. answer. No, it was a great answer, Doctor Basili. And if you are seeing an individual mm-hmm. who's lost a loved one, start to engage in self-destructive behaviors or or activities they wouldn't normally engage, like they're drinking very heavily, mm-hmm. or they're lashing out or they're doing things that would be totally out of character for them, are you infringing upon their ability to mourn in a way that they see fit by preventing them from doing those activities? Should you kind of just let them go on their own and only kind of intervene or step in if they're engaging in activities that would put their own lives or the lives of others at risk? Yeah, I mean, that that actually is a much easier uh, question. <laughs> so let's say, let's say it's my best friend. She's been my friend's best friend since 1973, and I watched her go through an enormous loss, enormous loss. And, and then I watched the aftermath of that, that loss. And she's watched me go through all those, those losses, right? Here's the one thing I know that we would do for each other. What I know about that is if, in her case, I saw her behaving in ways that I thought she would harm herself or someone else. Forget about the psychology of things. Let's just talk about friendship. I would sit down and say, I'm worried about you, or I would get myself on a plane to help her. In a case of me, she knows what behaviors are a little bit out of line for me. And so if she saw me engaging in those, I guarantee you, guarantee you, she would bring every ounce of New Jersey to the Pacific Northwest and straighten my butt out for real. That's what would happen. So for me, if I'm watching somebody that I know well enough to know that something is happening here that's going to do harm to them or another person, and I'm comfortable enough to show up in a loving way to support them through it, I will do it. But I'm not sure that I have or believe I have the right to interfere with somebody's grieving process, whatever that looks like. I mean, I know what my was, my grieving process was all along the way, up until two years ago with my sisters. 
But I don't know that about another person. There's something key, though, to your question, and I want to make sure we go back to it. And it's the question you said to me about doing harm. Yeah, I would step in like uh, a hot knife in butter. If I saw someone that I knew and I knew what they were capable of and I saw them taking an action that would hurt themselves, forget about it from a psychological point of view. I would step in, you know, from a compassionate point of view. Now, what would I do? It would it would have to depend. If somebody said, I'm going to kill myself, I'm telling you, you call 911. That's what you do. Um, if you saw someone pull a knife out of a drawer or if you saw someone threatening to take a bottle of pills, you have to take an action, an action around that because those things are very clear. But I, I will tell you this, that that is not the norm. People don't openly come out and say that. So those of us that, you know, work with other people in the world or are friends with them, we have to pay more attention to the subtle cues. You know what I'm saying? Like if if somebody is used to showing up at church every Sunday and all of a sudden they're not there, that's just an example. Or let's say you go to a typical meeting and they're not there. Or let's say you have the group of friends and all of a sudden they've missed three, four, five events. Somebody should be picking up the phone and saying, how are you doing? Right? But here's yeah. the thing I want to say to you, Ryan, about this. If this is a friend of mine, none of us should let it get to that place. If this is somebody that we know and we know they're going through this kind of loss, let's not wait till this is what's going on with them. If we could learn how to show up in compassion and support while somebody is going through this, I think that's going to be the key. I think that's going to be the key. Because people that go through loss, they want to be alone. They want to isolate, right? You know, they might want to sit there and drink a fifth of Jack Daniels or, you know, maybe more so than that. They got a couple of pills in the pill cabinet. Maybe they want to do that. But if there's another way to help them, to support them, then that's the way to go. Um, I'm just going to kind of end with this because this is important to me. You know, my journey is a spiritual one. And so first half of my life, I try to resolve things at the human level. I don't do that anymore. You know, I it's taken me a while to really build the spiritual practice that actually makes sense to me. And so today, I have to go to that place. And that place is usually a place of gratitude for all of the things that I got to enjoy and love about that person or that job or that other thing. That's not easy to do alone. But once you're able to do it, energy changes. So, you know, your question is a really important one because we will literally watch people go down the pathway of destruction if nothing else, Ryan, just on social media. And if we see it and you have the heart and the courage to step in and offer a hand, that would be the way I would go. Dr. Pat Basili, I want to thank you so, yeah, so much for you. being Thank you so much for being You can learn more about Dr. Pat and hear a fantastic show by going to the website, thedrpatshow.com. Dr. Basili, we really enjoyed having you on. Thank you so much for being with us today. Awesome. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. Rebecca Asvala. She's a board-certified psychiatrist with a holistic focus, integrating mindfulness with traditional psychiatry methods. You can learn more about her by going to her website at Rebecca S. Vala, MD.com. Dr. Vala, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much. So, based on your methodology, how do you di- differentiate yourself from your typical psychiatrist? Do you, you see, you are you very open to the idea that people have near-death experiences, and very open to the idea that people can be intuitive and have extrasensory perception or use other things that defy logic? Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't know that they defy logic, <laughs> uh, but I'd say that they expand on our understanding of, uh, of how people know what they know and uh, how they conduct themselves based on their perceptions. Um, so when I – well, go ahead. And when somebody has a near-death experience or a person has a communication with somebody, a lost loved one, how does that affect people? Uh, some of the ways that it affects them psychologically speaking, do they feel um, a sense of shame? Do they feel a sense of, you know, they don't want to reveal it to the world because they're already in more pain? They don't want to deal with the scrutiny? In your experience, how do people tend to react to certain things like that? Well, it, uh, the vast majority of near-death experiences are extremely positive experiences. And people describe them as uh, coming home, the common way that, that they uh, talk about it. They describe themselves as being completely surrounded by love and acceptance and uh, non-judgment. Uh, and so many times they don't want to come back from, from their experience. And sometimes they're given a choice to come back or not to come back. And often if they do come back, they have an understanding of why. They have a purpose. They have people who need them, something that they feel that is unfinished that that they need to do. And they, if they have had contact with loved ones who are deceased, they're, they're generally so positive, even if the relationships were complicated or, or um, negative or un, uh, unresolved in life, if they have these communications, and often it's visual and it's often telepathic in terms of, of understanding one another, it's, uh, it's tremendously fulfilling. It brings peace and joy. So when they come back, it's more um, – it's transformed them in the sense that it feels more real to them to have had their near-death experience in that reality than it does to be in this reality, which is so fraught with confusion, uh, difficulty, pain, uh, and uncertainty. Do you think that from your experience that person has a near-death experience, maybe it's equivalent to having you know years of therapy or having successful therapy? Because I guess once you experience this form of reality where you're like, well, everything's wonderful, everything's okay, well, what do you have to worry about when you go back to the physical body? I'm just curious from your experience. Yes, it's absolutely accelerating as far as a person's personal growth. It's transformative. But that transformation takes work, too, because it has to involve some integration, and that takes time because it's as though they have two different worlds now, and they have to somehow make those worlds meet for them. They have to live in this world. They can't live in the other world. But they now know some things that they didn't know before that are wonderfully transformative and inspirational. They don't usually feel shame about the experience itself. They just feel so different from everyone else, and they feel that other people won't believe them. And they particularly feel that the medical world will find them having some pathology, that they're 
they're crazy, that, that they're, you know, they're psychiatrically ill, that they need to be put on medication. That kind of judgment is what they're afraid of. So that's where the hiding comes in. If they feel like, you know, I don't know how to explain this. Uh, they don't, they don't know other people generally who've had those kinds of experiences. And I have enough sense to know that it's, it, it's really unusual and it's a different version than the rest of us have about what's real and true here as human beings. I have asked another one of our experts on this, but I want to know from your perspective, do you think that people should be open to this communication regardless if it challenges their long-held beliefs? Because I wonder if some people will say, you know, I want to acknowledge, I want to believe that I'm being contacted by by spirit. I want to acknowledge certain things. However, it goes against my science based science based logic. It goes against my religious beliefs. You know, what mm-hmm. is what is the position you feel a person should take when they are healing, when they're trying to heal and recover? Is should all bets be off, and should you just focus on whatever feels good and whatever feels right? I tell people that um, one of the uh, basic commitments that we have to each of our own selves is to determine what's true and that we cannot determine what's true without our heartfelt experience and resonating with what we believe is true from a from a heart place and that once that happens you can't deny it you know what is true for the individual and in their own experience is is the truth and then for them to decide how they're going to build their life around what's true for them well, that's what each of us have the opportunity to do. But that's where joy and happiness come from. It's from the individual, you know, finding out who they truly are and living out of that authenticity. Dr. Rebecca S. Valla, board-certified psychologist with a holistic focus. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Learn more about Dr. Valla by going to us at, at Rebecca at RebeccaSValaMD.com. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Valla. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes part two of The Death Show. Special thanks to our amazing guests. The next program we have is also going to focus on mental health. It's going to focus on some alternative treatments. I hope you stick around and listen to that. If you're enjoying The Death Show so far, please feel free to share it with other people. The whole point of the show is to bring some measure of peace and understanding to those who are seeking it. And that's what we hope to accomplish with The Death Show. To learn more about the Outer Limits of the Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.